Well, hello and welcome to the first episode of The Jacob Wall Show. Many of you are joining us here uh, for the first time and others have watched my former program, Man Up with Jacob Wall on Censored.tv for a long time. Wherever you're coming from, whether you're watching live uh, on YouTube or someplace else, or you are uh, listening on podcast apps everywhere, thanks for joining me. And we've got uh, a lot of news to discuss today, a lot of different stories I'm going to provide you some analysis that you can't get anywhere else, and I think that you're going to be very grateful. I think you're going to enjoy the show. And we start off, of course, with the Trump document story. We have this out now uh, discussion about Trump having documents at Mar-a-Lago. Of course, the FBI raid that happened recently and all of that. What's really going on? Well, we have a lot more details that have come out, courtesy of Justice Department filings, details which may or may not be true. Trump has responded to these filings, both on Truth Social and in uh, court filings of his own. And so we're going to get into all of this and I think shed some light on what was actually going on. Now, before we go into the intrigue, the secrets, the redactions, we have to acknowledge that there's a very possible, simple explanation for all of this. And that is that the National Archives wanted the original copies of the Little Rocket Man letters, the Kim Jong-un letters, and things like this, and Trump didn't want to give them to the archives. That is very possible. It is even possible that in the course of the archives trying to get these back, they had Biden uh, or someone else reclassify the documents rendering them once again classified and uh, making that the attempt by the archives to get these original records from Trump. That's very possible. It is also possible that Trump is just once again served by very incompetent staffers, very incompetent lawyers, uh, people that are not the best people. He said he would hire the best people. And obviously, as we saw in his administration, uh, Donald Trump is not God's gift to hiring. He hired bad person after bad person after bad person, people who were in some cases quite competent, but they were competent and they were determined to sabotage his administration, to sabotage his agenda, to go after his supporters in so many cases. We saw that over and over again. I mean, remember something. Donald Trump is the guy as president who appointed Christopher Wray, to run the FBI, that creepy little court jester freak who runs the FBI. He was appointed by Trump. Biden kept him because he's such a good functionary of the Democrat Party. But we have a report here out of the Associated Press. Uh, they write, the Justice Department says classified documents were likely concealed and removed from a storage room at former President Donald Trump's Florida estate as part of an effort to obstruct the federal investigation into the discovery of the government records. So this is a, a report that came out of the AP. They think that there were documents likely concealed and removed. We don't know a lot about why they think that. Uh, so the FBI went in, they seized boxes. Of course, this picture, the one you see next to me, for those of you watching on video, uh, came out that the FBI positioned this picture uh, going all over Twitter, being at the top of Drudge, uh, being a very visceral experience 
for the left who are still looking to make the political discussion in this country all about Trump because Trump gets ratings. Donald Trump gets ratings. Joe Biden doesn't. It's very hard to stay in business as the media without having a Trump news cycle. The media built up massively around Trump. What were once considered blogs, remember they used to call them blogs? Places like the Daily Beast and Politico were considered political blogs with bloggers. All of a sudden became press outlets with journalists, prestigious journalists. And they grew to such a degree that people... Uh, who had no business being in the realm of journalism, were hired and were added on. Places like BuzzFeed went deep into politics, expanded massively, went public at a huge valuation, and then crashed like 95%. Their stock's down 95-plus percent because it's hard to make a business of clickbait headlines and Trump's going to be arrested tomorrow when you don't have Trump in the White House. So that's what a lot of this is about. Now, Uh, They write here in the Associated Press, the timeline laid out by the Justice Department made clear that the extraordinary extraordinary search of Mar-a-Lago came only after other efforts to retrieve the records had failed and that it resulted from law enforcement suspicion that additional documents remained inside the property despite assurances by Trump representatives that a diligent search had accounted for all material. So uh, they thought there were documents missing that they needed. They were looking for specific copies of things, and the Trump representatives Uh, meaning lawyers, told the Justice Department that the documents had all been turned over. Now, you have the photo uh, that shows these documents, and they say secret SCI with bright yellow borders. Some say top secret SCI. SCI stands for Secure Compartmented Information. Uh, Within the realm of security clearances, there are a lot of different sorts of security clearances that you can get. When it comes to secret clearances, millions of people have those. Top secret clearances, still, you have two or three million Americans who have top secret clearances. In D.C., uh, practically every other person you run into has a top secret clearance. SCI means that there's a specific program that is even more classified that you need to be cleared at, and you go and seek out that clearance. It has to do with need-to-know information and the like. I don't have time to go into all the details, but those were some of the documents. Now, these... Uh, were found at Mar-a-Lago by the Justice Department. There is no uh, accusation by the Trump team, insofar as I have seen now, that the documents were planted there by uh, the FBI. Trump has not said that they planted the documents, that they brought them in and planted them. There's no allegation of that as of now. And so the question is, was Trump allowed to possess these documents, first of all? Justice Department says no. They said that they were not able to be stored at that location, that they had to be stored at the archives. Remember, this was originally an exchange between the National Archives and Trump. Then it ultimately became a matter where the National Archives then got the Justice Department involved. They referred it to the Justice Department. Now you've got the FBI and the Justice Department involved in this whole uh, case. And so one of the questions that comes to mind for me is this. Trump has now taken to Truth Social, as have uh, many people close to Trump, and they have said, well, good thing I declassified all the documents. That's what Trump maintains now, is that he declassified all the documents. 
That's what Cash Patel had said earlier on. It's a big talking point that's being pushed all over conservative social media. Well, if that's the case, and it very well could be the case that Trump specifically declassified all those documents, if that is the case, uh, then one of the questions that comes to mind for me is that in all of these letters that are going back and forth to the Department of Justice, why didn't Trump ever have the lawyers, or why didn't the lawyers ever on their own, point the Justice Department and the National Archives to the specific records uh, of those uh, documents being declassified by Trump? In other words, they say they want document uh, number one, two, three, let's say. Why didn't the Trump team uh, tell the National Archives and tell the Justice Department, go reference uh, declassification, reference ABC as it pertains to document one, two, three? And then they can go and look and say, well, it's been declassified. The other question that I have is, other than doing that, which would seem to have been able to avoid this entire raid, which the Justice Department now admits was an extraordinary raid, why didn't, uh, why didn't the, the, the Trump team release those documents publicly? You know, there's all this talk of documents, and they're secret documents. Maybe they concern nuclear secrets. Trump sees them as being important enough to take with him to Mar-a-Lago. He says that he declassified them when he was president, when he had the capacity to do so. Well, if that's the case, if they were so important, why didn't he ever just release the documents publicly and say they're not classified, they're just the same as any other piece of paper, here they are to the public? I don't know. I'm not making uh, an assertion here about any of this. I'm just asking these questions. These are obvious questions that come to mind for me, is why didn't Trump's lawyers tell the DOJ these documents have been declassified. Here's the record of the declassification and perhaps release them publicly. That would seem to be the thing that you'd want to do in this months-long back and forth that he's had with the National Archives and then the Justice Department slash FBI for the last, oh, I don't know, for the last uh, year, basically. For, for about a year, they've been going back and forth on these documents. Uh, the other thing that I have learned in the last week is, is, is some original reporting that I can bring you on this whole matter of a mole at Mar-a-Lago. There's been a lot made out of this, uh, people speculating, uh, is the mole Jared Kushner? Is the mole that person? Is the mole this person? Well, uh, I can tell you exactly what is going on here. The FBI, first of all, never said that there was a mole at Mar-a-Lago. That is a term that was uh, propounded in speculation by members of the media, by commentators online. Nobody's ever said there was a mole. They said there was a confidential source who they can't name. Well, I'm prepared to tell you that source, that source, the original source, uh, was in fact the CIA liaison to the Department of Justice. And so if you don't know how this works, agencies have liaisons who are assigned basically to the office of the other agency to manage exchanges of information and coordination between agencies in D.C. It's well known. And CIA basically had learned that there were TSSCI documents at Mar-a-Lago from one of their sources, so from one of CIA sources in an overseas intelligence uh, agency. Not necessarily overseas, a foreign intelligence agency. Could have been the Canadians, for all we know. I don't know which intelligence agency that was, which foreign intelligence agency that was. The uh, CIA has not even given that information to the FBI or Department of Justice. They consider that need to know, and they say, Here's what we learned. You don't need to know where we learned it, but we did learn it. 
So then DOJ and FBI want to confirm this. They go to the National Archives. National Archives says, yeah, there's a few things uh, we can't find. Okay. Then what the FBI does is that they tasked one of the Secret Service agents who is on Trump's detail at Mar-a-Lago. There's a lot of agents down there because, you know, Trump lives in a very unusual situation, considering that he's a former president at Mar-a-Lago, where he has this mansion, but it's on this complex where you have members of the public, uh, oftentimes uh, event guests, members of the golf club that are, that are there coming in and out constantly. Uh, most former presidents, vice presidents, they live on some big compound that would be locked down. And besides them and their family, nobody would really be coming and going constantly, whereas Mar-a-Lago could have 1,000 or 2,000 people a day streaming in and out or more. So they have a lot of Secret Service agents down there, and they had one of those <clears throat> Secret Service agents, he or she, we don't know who, uh, go down and check this out and determine that, yes, there were documents marked TSSCI and, S and Secret SCI in the basement. That is the source of this information. That's how this came about. Uh, we have a report out from Politico, and I'm going to take uh, some uh, chat questions here I see on YouTube, and uh, Super Chats I think are enabled. I I'm not certain uh, if you really want to be sure your question's asked. Of course, uh, each week on the show, I take your questions that come in through my website about uh, dating, fitness, relationships. You just go to jacobwool.org slash contact to ask those questions. Uh, but we have another report out from Politico here. It concerns the, the, the whole matter of the lawyers talking to DOJ. And the report from Politico says, days before Mar-a-Lago uh, subpoena, Trump lawyers claimed uh, Trump lawyer claimed that she scoured Trump's office, closets, and drawers. A filing by Alina Haba in the case over Trump's business empire could create exposure in the matter of classified information being stored in the ex-president's home. So this is a filing in New York uh, in litigation with the New York AG. The New York AG has been relentlessly coming after Trump. She has been relentlessly coming after me and Jack Berkman as she attacks prominent Republicans. That's what she does. Letitia James is her name. She, she had Trump in for a deposition for four hours. She had me in for a deposition for uh, 10 hours plus. My partner, Jack, for uh, over 20 hours uh, between testifying personal capacity and in the capacity of the business. So... This is this lawyer, Alina Haba, that's representing him in the New York case. Well, this is what she looks like. Here's Alina Haba, and there's a report out from Politico. It says, just six days before the Justice Department subpoenaed to recover highly sensitive documents housed at Mar-a-Lago, one of former President Donald Trump's attorneys scoured the estate searching for records in response to a separate legal matter. Now, for those of you that don't know, I can shed some unique light on this story because I have had to have lawyers do the exact same thing in response to subpoenas from the New York AG, where they say, we want all of these documents. And sometimes the documents don't exist. Like, we want an org chart of your lobbying firm. Well, we don't have an org chart. Well, have you searched for it? Yes. Are you sure you've searched for it? Yes. Have you searched high and low? Did you search in your closet? They ask you 27 different questions in uh, this deposition. They make you sign a, an attestation that says you, in fact, looked for this non-existent document. 
So that's the kind of thing that she was certifying here. That's what she was certifying. Uh, she said she searched all desks, drawers, nightstands, dressers, closets, etc. Uh, she was looking for records in response to a subpoena issued by Letitia James. In the same filing, uh, it includes an affidavit from Trump himself indicating that he authorized Alina Haba to search my private residence and personal office located at the Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida, for any documents. So this is what uh, she certified, is that she was searching for this. But now this complicates things as far as uh, should this woman be handling the case in New York, number one, <clears throat> but also uh, was she then exposed to classified documents that Trump had set around and could she uh, be in a position where she is not allowed to be exposed to those documents? That is what Politico is raising, and they say experts are raising the same question. This is a what you call a clickbait story, an idea that somebody drew up in a room and they say, ooh, this other filing says the lawyer searched, so maybe she knows secrets now. It's like, well, people who know secrets have to have lawyers. Those secrets would then be uh, in compliance with attorney-client privilege. Uh, if you are, say, charged with the Espionage Act, you hire a lawyer, and that lawyer, as far as I ever have heard, they don't have to necessarily have a top-secret SCI clearance to represent you in the case. The fact that they're not going to share what you tell them and what they glean in the case is a foregone conclusion. That's attorney-client privilege. And if the case were filed under seal, the same thing would apply. There are tons of situations like that where confidential information is involved in cases, names of witnesses, names of jurors, lots of things are exchanged. But it does bring up Trump's hiring of lawyers. You get back to this issue that Trump seems to have with hiring people. Well, Alina Haba's bio on her website says, uh, Alina has experience in many areas of litigation, including but not limited to corporate litigation and formation, uh, that means forming LLCs and the like, uh, commercial real estate, transactional litigation, family law, the financial services industry, and construction-related matters. So basically, she's a real estate lawyer in New York. Okay, she's a real estate lawyer in New York, and she's handling the New York AG's investigation. Is she cut out to do that job? I don't know. Her bio would suggest that maybe she's not the best person. She also handled for Trump, by the way, when his campaign uh, was raising challenges to the 2020 election, uh, she was handling those kind of matters as well. Well, down in Florida, he has yet a different lawyer uh, handling this exchange with the FBI. You know, the whole matter of the raid, the secret documents. He's got another lawyer handling that. Uh, this is that lawyer. Her name is Lindsay Halligan. And her bio states, uh, Lindsay Halligan is a partner in the Miami and Fort Lauderdale East Office's uh, property group which focuses on defending uh, multiple carriers and first-party insurance claims. Lindsay's practice focuses on the litigation of numerous water, fire, SIU, fraud, vandalism, and other theft claims on both residential and commercial properties. Additionally, Lindsay assists multiple carriers in many complex coverage matters, including conducting examinations under oath and preparing coverage opinions in both first-party and third-party claims. Okay, she is a real estate insurance lawyer. Uh, people own real estate, or people rent real estate, or they uh, are sold real estate, they own insurance associated with that, people file claims on the insurance she represents, it sounds like usually the insurance company, in litigating out whether the insurance company is going to pay the claim or not. And she may be very good at that, and by all appearances she is, but is she the right person 
to be handling a case involving secret documents, top secret SCI clearances, the counterintelligence division of the FBI. Could she tell you what counterintelligence is? I don't know. Nothing in her background would indicate that. It also mentions Lindsay grew up in Colorado, where she attended Regis University and majored in politics and broadcast journalism. And she very much has a face for broadcast journalism, as you can see here. And she's been uh, making the rounds on uh, television on Trump's behalf. She's been going out there and uh, doing a lot of shows. I, I first saw her on uh, Bill O'Reilly's uh, YouTube channel. That's where I initially saw her. And, and is there anything about these lawyers that looks familiar between these two, Alina Haba and Lindsay Halligan? I mean, do you, do you notice anything about these lawyers? Well, I mean, of course you do. They have the TV face. They have the Fox News appearance. And Trump has a history of this. He has a history of hiring beautiful women who don't possess the requisite experience and skill to do jobs which he tasked them to do. That He has done this over and over again. I remember uh, Trump hired a woman named Christian Nielsen to run the Department of Homeland Security. And Christian Nielsen couldn't get anybody deported. She didn't know how to get illegal aliens deported out of the country. She was utterly and completely incompetent. She finally resigned. Of course, you'll remember Heather Nauert. He hired her as a State Department spokeswoman. And she famously got up on the stage, another kind of bombshell blonde looking uh, woman. And she got up on the stage and uh, said that our relationship with Germany as a country goes back to when we fought alongside Germany uh, as allies on D-Day. She apparently thought that the United States and Germany were allies on D-Day and that we were fighting as allies against whom I don't know, but that's what uh, Heather Nauert apparently thought. So Trump has a history of this. This is not his his first time. Uh, for those of you who are listening in audio form, you'll just have to trust me when I talk about uh, some of these women and, and their appearances. And there's nothing wrong with good looks. I mean, all other things being equal, you want a good-looking attorney instead of a bad-looking one, but you don't hire for that. And there are a whole world of attorneys who can do a very good job in these fields. And Trump has chosen not to hire them and has chosen instead to work with uh, very attractive female real estate lawyers. I, I mean, I, I don't know how to put it any other way. Of course, Trump famously hired Michael Cohen as his, perfect, as his personal attorney, who secretly recorded him, turned on him, all of that stuff. So this claim of hiring all the best people, just, uh, it is just complete nonsense. I mean, what Trump really needs is he needs somebody like me. I'm not saying I would do it. But I've had to hire a lot of attorneys in my time. I've had to hire dozens of attorneys. And uh, because the left comes after me constantly. In fact, uh, just last week, I, I beat the Federal Communications Commission. The FCC, uh, more than a year ago, proposed a $5.2 million fine against me. They had one year to rule on the fine. We came back at them with heavy-duty litigation, and they ran out of time. So I'm, I'm $5.2 million richer than I would have been uh, had they come after me. Not that there was $5.2 million for them to take, but... Uh, at least they, they are no longer going to be able to try. Uh, but we, we get into the FCC here, and we, uh, we have a, a story about them coming up. But the bottom line is Trump needs to uh, 
have somebody who can hire his lawyers because he is unfit to do it, obviously. Uh, and, and frankly, other people. I don't know if you need a personnel manager or, or what you need, but it's at this point, it's just embarrassing. It is really embarrassing. But we have a story out from uh, FCC information that came out in the last week. This is uh, from CNN, but sometimes it can be useful to look at the fake news outlets because uh, what you're able to do is determine what the government wants you to know based on the way that they plant information with certain outlets. Uh, This is the report from CNN. It says, uh, the country's largest wireless carriers not only know where you are every time you make a phone call or use your data connection, which is constantly, by the way, because your phone's constantly updating in the background, but they routinely hold on to that location information for months and in some cases years, providing it to law enforcement whether you like it or not, according to carrier letters made last week uh, public by the Federal Communications Commission. So your phone is constantly tracking you via the cell towers. You're triangulated. They know exactly where you are. They keep that data for months or years. And if the police want it or the federal government wants it, they turn it over even without a warrant. So it's just yet another erosion of your Fourth Amendment rights. Of course, you agreed to this when you signed the terms of service with any of these carriers. And the reason that they're okay with doing it is because they don't want to be dragged into court on motions to quash on every single instance of uh, somebody requesting uh, data from a law enforcement agency requesting data on a, on a cell user. So it says, uh, from data about which cell towers your smartphone has been communicating with to your specific GPS coordinates, your smartphone constantly gives off a tremendous amount of information on your whereabouts, the letters from AT&T, Verizon, and other carriers show. For example, T-Mobile retains granular latitude and longitude coordinates of devices on its network for up to 90 days and less granular cell site data for up to two years, the company told the FCC in a letter dated August 3rd. Verizon said it holds cell site data for up to one year, while AT&T said it may retain cell data for up to five years. Company letters highlighted how telecom companies and not just tech platforms cooperate with government requests for personal information, an issue that's received intense scrutiny in recent months as new state laws restrict restricting abortion. I don't know why they bring abortion into this, uh, yada, yada, yada. So this is the bottom line. The cell companies are tracking you. How do you deal with this? I've talked about this on the old show on Censored.TV before. If you want to prevent this, if you want to prevent uh, your data being tracked and used in this way, there is a a good way to do it, and it will prevent this from happening to you to a large degree. And people like me who uh, endure this kind of snooping from government constantly, we have to take measures like this often. And, And for most of you, this isn't going to be practical to do. For some of you, it might be. And it goes like this. You don't, first of all, have a plan with the phone carrier. You buy the iPhone uh, cash. You buy it uh, or or with a a Visa gift card that's a disposable gift card that was purchased with cash. Okay, could somebody find out who bought it at some point down the line? Absolutely. But you're you're making it just a little bit harder. It's going to be factory unlocked. Then you're going to get a bring-your-own-device SIM card from the store. Again, you're going to pay for it in the same way. When you do that, you're going to get a phone number, uh, and, and you can pick a phone number. You want to pick one that comes back to maybe an old lady who's recently passed away or something, and now her phone number is available again because all the databases are going to associate that number with her. 
you aren't going to give this phone number to uh, people who are going to sell it into databases, to, to advertisers, to uh, the bank. You use a different phone number for that. And you're, when, you, when you sign up for the Bring Your Own Device SIM, you aren't going to give them your name. You're going to pay for it uh, every month with a disposable Visa gift card in the same way I pointed out. And again, for most of you, this is not something that you need to worry about or, or, or are going to need to do. But it will prevent your number from getting out there. It will prevent the government from knowing which phone number to ask about if they decide one day that they want to uh, start tracking you down. Now, for other types of government use of this data, it, it won't help you. I mean, for example, you know, if you decide that you're going to go out in the forest and, and commit arson, start a wildfire or something, and you were the only phone within a couple of square miles of that, and then you decided you were going to bring your phone with you, and, and then you decided you were going to keep that phone, and they're going to ping it again and find you, well, it's not going to help you get away with that. This, I'm not talking about getting away with crimes. I'm just talking about preventing uh, the constant casual snooping that are completely out of control uh, federal government engages in. I have people here asking about VPNs. Well, VPNs, again, are good for preventing casual snooping. And I'm not talking about how do you get away with crimes. I don't know. I'm not the guy to ask. I'm not a criminal. But uh, VPNs can certainly prevent the constant trove of data uh, that helps people uh, build a profile on you. And there are people out there that build a profile on you. If you're listening to this show today, if you live in the United States, frankly, any place else, you can go to a data carrier like LexisNexis, Locate Plus, uh, TransUnion, TLO, and you can sign up for their database. It make you go through some things. We have it, for example, for the lobbying firm because it's a law firm, and we do due diligence on clients before we let them in and things like this. And you sign up, and, and I can look up your name, and it will tell me your social security number, your phone number, uh, your address, your past addresses, your who you've lived with, your roommates, your kids, where they live, where they've lived, who you were married to. It'll tell me your credit information, liens, judgments, et cetera, the other. Somebody at some point took the time to conglomerate all of that data together such that anyone can just look it up. You think your social security number is private? It's not private at all. Anybody with $99 a month can uh, have a database that will tell them your social security number in five seconds. Now, of course, these companies take measures to keep these databases out of the hands of identity thieves and the like, of course, but uh, it is not foolproof. And certainly law enforcement has access to these databases. So it, it's one of those tough things. How about calling apps? Calling apps are a good things. So what I would do is I'd have a secure a phone number like the one I just talked about with a SIM card, and then I would have a calling app, a reliable one, uh, which I would use for that other number that I do give away to the bank, to the, uh, you know, to Facebook, to, to wherever you need a phone number where you, you have a reasonable assumption that they might sell your number up the line. It also talks about how the government in this article talks about how the government uh, buys data from these uh, so-called data brokers and the like, who, who collect it on behalf of advertisers. So oftentimes the government's going straight to, straight to, uh, these companies and 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 they are buying the data. So uh, that's happening constantly. There's a, there's a report out though I want to talk about here. It has to do with a story that isn't brand new, but rather it's a story which came out 
a number of months ago, uh, and I think that that it can be informative. I think that this story can can teach us a lot about uh, toughness, about risk, about a number of different topics. And so we're going to get into it here. This, of course, is the the story of uh, Kyle uh, Kyle Mullins. And so we're going to go here to uh, Kyle Mullins, and we're going to uh, look at this story uh, from the New York Times. Uh, so we this is this is a story out of the New York Times here, um, and it says death in Navy SEAL training exposes a culture of brutality, cheating, and drugs. The elite forces selection course is so punishing that few make it through, and many of those who do resort to illicit tactics. Illicit tactics. Well, I know a thing or two, I think, about about toughness. I think I know a thing or two about uh, performance-enhancing drugs. So I, I want to weigh in here on some of this story. I've done a lot of research uh, about different points in this story, and I think that we can all uh, learn a lot from, from what happened here. So we're going to go into this here. Uh, from the New York Times, reporter named Dave Phillips. And again, this isn't a brand new story, but this is new information, a new framing of the story that has come out. It says, Kyle Mullins always had the natural drive and talent that made success look easy until he tried out for the Navy SEALs. A 24-year-old, same age as me, uh, arrived on the California coast in January for the SEALs punishing selection course in the best shape of his life, even better than he was uh, as a state champion defensive end in high school or the captain of the football team at Yale. So this is a smart guy, went to Yale, uh, but in the middle of the course's third week, a continual gut punch of physical and mental hardship, sleep deprivation, and hypothermia that SEALs call Hell Week. The six foot four inch, same height as me too, Jesus, six foot four inch uh, athlete from uh, Manalapan, New Jersey, was dead eyed with exhaustion riddled with infection and coughing up blood from the lungs that were so full of fluid that others who were there said later that he sounded like he was gargling. So uh, we're going to uh, get into this. We are going to talk about what, what exactly happened here. It says the course began with 210 men by the middle of hell week. 189 had quit or been brought down by injury. It started with 210 and they, they got down to 189 had quit by the time they had uh, been into the middle of Hell Week. That's a lot. And that tells you about you know what kind of people are, are getting into the training. Uh, Hell Week, I think, is the fifth week of training. 189 and quit. But Seaman Mullen kept slogging for days, uh, spitting blood all the while. The instructors and medics conducting the course, perhaps out of admiration for his grit, did not stop him. No, they don't stop him as a matter of as a matter of policy. Um, they and I've looked into this. I mean, they're not going to really stop someone from training um, absent, you know, a bone sticking out of their leg and they just simply can't move, then they're going to be stopped. And, and the reason for that is there are tremendous stories, and, I've, and, and former SEALs have filled me in on this. There are tremendous stories of guys who had stress fractures, who had broken bones, who had various health problems, who had pneumonia, who had colds, coughs, flus, who if you had the kind of medical protocol that you have in, say, a sports team where they'd be pulled out, they would not have made it to the SEAL teams. And in fact, these people gritted it out, they made it through, and they turned out to be historically a capable Navy SEALs. And so the, the policy is that they'll let you kill yourself in training. 
They will let you go until you die. And, and people have died, as they get into here in this article. And it says, and he made it. He struggled out of the cold ocean at the end of Hell Week. A SEAL leader shook his hand, gave him a pizza, and told him to get some rest. Then he went back to his barracks to lay down uh, on, and lay down on the floor. I don't know why he would lay down on the floor, uh, but he laid down on the floor. And for those of you who have ever had pneumonia, and I, I know a thing or two about pneumonia now because back when we were doing season two of Predator DC, uh, we went from season one, which, for, which was the last weekend of August. Uh, we had the build up to that, which was four weeks of 20 hour days. I mean, just relentless, actual 20 hour days, seven days a week. Uh, for that, physically and mentally exhausting to set that up, to hire all those people, to bust all those uh, pedos. Well, we went from that right into season two, the first weekend in November. No break, essentially. By the last day of season two of the shoot, I had pneumonia. It was very bad, kind of like this gargling. And um, if you've ever had pneumonia, you know, you don't lay down flat. It it makes it much worse. You have to, as, as hard as it is, you have to try and even sleep upright, it also tends to get worse at night uh, for whatever reason. And uh, I don't know, we'll get into this here, but more commentary on this, but pneumonia can be bad. I mean, I, I felt like I was on death's door by that time. I still didn't miss Man Up that week. I, I was two days late. I didn't miss it. I didn't miss the show. 125 weeks, 125 episodes, never miss it. Of course, this show is twice weekly. They got a picture here of, of uh, Kyle Mullen uh, when he joined the Navy after uh, being captain of the Yale football team. Says that same afternoon, another man who survived Hell Week had to be intubated. Uh, two more were hospitalized that evening. Now, you get hospitalized. I mean, that, that's a reality of, of these kind of tough things. I've had to hospitalize people that have worked on Predator DC. Now, hospitalized doesn't mean, you know, they, they died. It means they needed to get an IV, some glucose, whatever it might be. That counts as a hospitalization. The SEAL teams have faced criticism for decades, both from outsiders and from their own Navy leadership, that their selection course, known as Basic Underwater Demolition Team, uh, under, underwater demolition uh, SEAL training, or BUDS, is too difficult, too brutal, and too often causes concussions, broken bones, dangerous infections, and near drownings. Since 1953, at least 11 men have died in the training. So by training standards, I mean, if you want to build dangerous men, you have to do some dangerous training. That is uh, a, a reality of this. There's no way to train somebody to do that job in a way that is not dangerous. And by the way, it's not the only job training that's dangerous. You want to be a power line worker? You're going to need to be trained. And the training, just like the job, at points is going to be dangerous. You want to be an NFL player? That's dangerous. You want to train for that? It's dangerous. I mean, the, the, these are, are the realities of this. And it's dangerous to the point that, yes, you could die. Now, since 1953, 11 deaths. Now, that sounds like not that many to me. 11 deaths since 1953. So coming up on 70 years and there's been 11 deaths in that training, it, it actually doesn't sound that bad. It really sounds like they have quite a good safety regime is what it sounds like to me. Um, it sounds like they're doing a good job keeping the training safe because you have a lot of young people out there. I mean, some of them as young as 17 years old, uh, 
uh, 17, you know, to, to 24 to 25 and sometimes a little older and they are exhausted and they're swimming in the ocean and they are, uh, shooting guns towards the end of it, third phase, uh, and all of this scuba diving. These are all inherently dangerous activities and 11 die in seven years. That's pretty good. I mean, if a, if a, if a scuba diving, uh, private, you know, tour enterprise saw as many people as, as Bud's training does and as many young people as they do, young men, and in 70 years of being in business, they'd only had 11 die, that would be a pretty good safety record. It would be a pretty good safety record. It says, uh, for just as long, the SEAL teams who perform some of the military's most difficult missions, including lightning fast hostage rescues and the killing of high-level terrorists like Osama bin Laden, have insisted that having a bare-knuckle rite of passage is vital for producing the kind of unflinching fighters that the teams need. Without buds, they argue, there would be no SEALs. And actually, what I've heard from many of them is, is that it's not about producing these men, it's about finding them. Because if you just say, who wants the coolest, most prestigious job in the world where we're going to pay you to jump out of plane, scuba dive, shoot guns, blow things up, every guy's going to sign up. The question is, who really wants to be there? Who really wants to be there when the going gets tough and it gets really tough? You have to find those people. And if you could find those people by uh, doing a DNA test of them, a blood test, I'm sure you would do that. It'd be much faster. It'd be much cheaper. And then all you'd have to do is go through the matter of, of training them, teaching them the skills. BUDS is, is equal parts finding out who wants to be there. Those who really want to be there by the end of it are hardened. So you have the discovery process, the hardening process, and the training process. Okay, here's how you do uh, open circuit diving, closed circuit diving, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there, it's all three. It's not any one of those. It's all three. It's training, hardening, and it is uh, the discovery process of who really wants to be there. So it's, it's more than just that. Privately, they talk of training casualties as a cost of doing business. A former SEAL, David Goggins, best-selling author, uh, wrote in his memoir about a sailor who drowned during his hell week. Soon afterward, he wrote, an instructor told the class, this is the world you live in. He's not the first and he won't be the last to die in your line of work. And that's true. And by the way, you want to talk about a dangerous military training? Bud's is not even close to the most dangerous. Pilot training, and, and in the case of helicopters and, and, and larger planes like AC-130s, and, and, and crew training that are on these planes, that is far more dangerous. I mean, those uh, uh, V-22 Ospreys, they have been crashing like there's no tomorrow. They have been crashing like there's no tomorrow. Uh, there is a video, I mean, these aren't in combat. This is in just in training exercises, a fighter pilot training, helicopter training, uh, freighter training. I mean, whatever plane you're talking about, pilot training is far more dangerous than BUDS, far more dangerous. I mean, I, I don't know how many fatalities exactly. I can't give you an exact figure. I looked for it. But, you know, th this is uh, something in which uh, the, the, the number of deaths in pilot training, whether it's Air Force, Army, Marine pilot training, whatever it happens to be, Navy pilots, uh, is, it's just far more dangerous. And they have probably 11 deaths every year 
or more, or more, if you count pilots, co-pilots, air crew, uh, all of that, far more. And even the guys on the ground, by the way, who sometimes make a mistake and they end up getting hurt by the plane, run over by the plane, uh, you know, running into a tail rotor, things like this. It's very dangerous, many times more dangerous than BUDS. It says, BUDS is hardly the only dangerous selection course in the military. Many Army Special Forces and Air Force pilots have also died in training. Yeah, pilots die a lot, just as like I just talked about. I mean, and they don't really touch on that. Many more than 11 since 1953, okay? Many more. It says, after Seaman uh, Mullen died, the SEAL teams appeared to try to deflect some of the blame from the course and frame the incident as a freak occurrence. Well, I'd say if, you're, if you do however many classes they do in a year, I think it varies by the year. But several classes a year since 1953, they're up to what, in the four or five hundreds as far as class numbers now. And you have 11 deaths. You're, you're doing a pretty good job, and, and it does sort of look like a freak occurrence. Doesn't mean there wasn't a failure that caused it, and we get into some of this here. Though Seaman Mullen had coughed up blood for days and it needed oxygen, the Navy announced that he and the man who was intubated were not actively training when they reported symptoms and had neither had experience or accident or unusual incident during the week. Okay. Uh, the official cause of death was bacterial pneumonia. Again, bacterial pneumonia is no joke. But Seaman Mullen's family says the true cause was the course itself in which instructors routinely drove candidates to dangerous states of exhaustion and injury, and medical staff grew so accustomed to seeing the suffering that they failed to hospitalize him or even monitor him once Hell Week was over. Uh, they killed him, his mother said. Uh, they say it's training, but it's torture. And they didn't even give them the proper medical care. They treat these guys worse than they are allowed to treat prisoners of war. They do treat them worse than they're allowed to treat prisoners of war. The mother says it's training, but it's torture. And, you know, it, like I said, it's all three. It's, it's torture in the sense of figure out who really wants to be there. It's hardening because people aren't hard enough to do that job right out of the box. And it's also training, lastly. But being a Navy SEAL is a hell of a lot harder than being a nurse. It's just a lot harder. And so you can't simply say, we're going to teach you how to check the pulse. We're going to teach you how to do this, teach you how to do that. And you do the job because the job is so hard that if you aren't a hard person, you will not only get yourself killed, but you'll get others killed, and you'll fail the mission. Seaman Mullen's death immediately resurfaced old questions about whether the curriculum or intentional hardship goes too far. As soon as those old questions uh, were complicated, uh, those old questions were complicated by something new. Uh, so this is, they talk about PEDs here. Uh, when the Navy gathered Seaman Mullen's belongings, they discovered syringes and performance-enhancing drugs in his car. The captain in charge of BUDS immediately ordered an investigation and soon... About 40 candidates had either tested positive or had admitted using steroids or other drugs in violation of Navy regulations. The Navy has not tied the sailor's death to drugs. Uh, the service is expected to release a report on the training death and the drug use in the fall. Uh, a Navy spokesman declined to comment on Seaman Mullen's death or on allegations of widespread drug use, saying it would be inappropriate to do before the reports are released. Uh, they got some photos here. Uh, still, the prevalence of drugs at BUDS has some men in the top reaches of the Navy SEALs deeply unnerved, not just because the drugs may have contributed to the death of a sailor, but also because they see their spread and the lack of discipline and order it implies as a threat to the Navy SEAL organization and this, that, or the other. Okay. So, uh, Navy, surprise, surprise, 
Jocko Willink doesn't say this, but every other uh, former Navy SEAL I've ever spoken to and current Navy SEAL I've ever spoken to, every other one, literally, and I've never spoken to Jocko Willink, but he says this publicly, he says, I never saw anybody using steroids in the SEAL teams, and I certainly didn't. Hey, you know what? Fair enough. But he looks like a silverback gorilla, and uh, so do a lot of these other guys, not quite to his extent. But you don't look like that while eating minimal food without having exogenous hormones, okay? And and every other former SEAL I've talked to says that the uh, steroid use is widespread. It's basically universal. And that is something that, uh, of course, it would be the case. You want men to go out and in some cases have to engage in hand-to-hand combat, to have to use their muscles to kill people and to not be killed themselves. They're going to get every edge that they can get, including performance-enhancing drugs, I mean, for God's sakes, a figure skater is using performance-enhancing drugs in the Olympics. A figure skater. The, the stakes for them involve what color the medal draped around their neck is going to be, and perhaps some sponsorship money, and that's about it. So you're saying that you think figure skaters universally use PEDs at the highest level in the Olympics, but warriors at the highest level don't or shouldn't? It is just completely bereft of any kind of common sense. It is so crazy. It is so crazy. Uh, I have somebody in the comments here saying, uh, in the last 10 years alone, there have been 133 manned flight mishaps, which have included crashes that caused the loss of aircraft, death, or permanent total disability to personnel of at least 40 people, it says here, uh, in the past 10 years alone. So in the past 10 years alone, you have 40 versus 11 and 70 years of SEAL training. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, what am I going to do with guys like that in a place like Afghanistan, said the leader? A guy who can do 100 pull-ups but can't make an ethical decision. I think, it's, I think the, use, the, the choice to use performance-enhancing drugs in the service of your country to be as effective as you can be is an ethically sound decision. I think it is. Now, if you were using cocaine, if you were using pot and it was hurting your performance, uh, then I would say absolutely not. And by the way, it's not just steroids. It's, it's Adderall to stay up. It's, uh, it's Dramamine and it's, uh, and it's Ambien to go to bed. It's a lot of this stuff, okay? And it's performance enhancing. These people in good faith want to enhance their performance in so many cases, so this the comment is just ridiculous from this uh, commander, obviously. It's just completely crazy. Uh, so they, they talk about this here, uh, about, the, about the drug use, uh, and they're not sure about you know, what the total is when it comes to this stuff. Uh, SEAL leaders say they don't have the authority to start a testing program to attack the problem. They, they shouldn't attack the problem. But here's where it gets interesting here. It says, one young sailor who went through Bud's in May said that many would-be SEALs had come to believe that the course was too hard to complete without drugs. Despite Seaman Mullen's death, he said some sailors were still using illicit performance enhancers, in particular a group of unregulated supplements called SARMs, which are difficult to detect. Well, I know about SARMs, okay? Uh, Selective androgen receptor modulator, SARMs. They work in much the same way that uh, steroids do. 
Now, there is a Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL, who has a YouTube channel, a guy by the name of Jake Zwee, great YouTube channel talking about this story. He said that what they do is they make your body produce more testosterone. Um, that is not the case. That is not how SARMs work. In fact, SARMs will shut down your endogenous production of testosterone and luteinizing hormone, just in the same way that steroids will. Uh, but he said perhaps the SARMs caused him to have an, a particularly bad experience with the uh, pneumonia. And I will tell you that uh, not so much for, uh, through clinical studies, but there are uh, some clinical studies and some clinical evidence of this, but certainly through anecdotal case reports, there are many reports of SARMs causing respiratory distress. Uh, people have heard of uh, trend cough from taking Trenbolone, which is a, a cattle steroid that's popular in bodybuilding. Uh, Finoplex is the original cattle product. Uh, Trenbolone acetate or Trenbolone enanthate is the uh, bodybuilding a supplement that is used, a very extreme uh, kind of steroid in terms of its uh, side effects, certainly. There are other steroids that can cause coughs. In the case of selectogen androgen receptor, selective androgen receptor modulators, it's very common. And the other problem with these uh, SARMs is, is, like I've said, there's several problems. Number one, they haven't been studied extensively. They're not ready for prime time. But the other problem is that you, they're unregulated. You're getting them. And oftentimes, you don't know what's actually in these, these SARMs. You can't buy an assay test to test what's in them uh, very easily, if at all. And so sometimes you get sent snake oil. It has nothing in it. You order these things online. Sometimes you're going to be sent actual SARMs. Sometimes you're going to be sent SARMs that are watered down. Sometimes you sent SARMs and it's mixed with steroids. Sometimes they're just, uh, you know, oral, you know, liquid Dianabol that they, they, they label as RAD140 or some kind of SARM. So SARMs are a world that is... Like I said, they're not ready for prime time, and there are anecdotal reports of SARMs causing uh, some uh, respiratory distress. And certainly, if you were already having problems with that, they mentioned needles, so presumably uh, Mullen was taking injectable SARMs, okay, which uh, might have the same sort of occurrence. A lot of people think that the trend cough is caused by trace amounts of preservatives in the trembolone getting into the bloodstream and then going to the lung, causing a problem. Nobody really knows. But it could have certainly contributed. It could have certainly contributed. They talk about here in this article how uh, he reached out to his mother. He says, uh, Mullen this is, says everybody else is taking them. I think I need to take them. He got a used car. On the first time, he, I guess he dropped within the first day of SEAL training uh, of BUDS. This was his second time through BUDS. Uh, they talk about running with the boat on the head. Okay, running with the boat on the head is not hard. The boat weighs 270 pounds, and you have seven or eight guys underneath it, so they're each carrying like, you know, 20 or 30 pounds on their head and running around. That is not hard. That is not hard. And, and the other part is that, you know, I, I was talking to, to Jack Berkman once, and I said, God, you know, can you imagine, Jack, if we— um, when we were in the depths of Predator DC with, you know, just uh, the overwhelming amount of work, I said, can you imagine if we, we went to like Navy SEAL training together and all we had to do was do obstacle courses and swimming and running and all that all day? We didn't have to like use our brains and, you know, think about and take calls from lobbying clients all day as we're dealing with the pedos, as we're dealing with being sued in five states by liberal AGs and being indicted in three or four. And I mean, just relentless attack like this. I mean, God, to, to just have to go and do obstacle courses and run and swim, I mean, uh, God, what I would do for that. My God, some days I would just love to have to do obstacle courses and running all day. So the, it's, it's about grit. 
is what this is about. This is about grit, is really what this, this, especially the first stage of this training comes down to. Who really wants to be there? So he was out once in this first day, I guess eight hours into training or something, and then he came back. Okay, the graduation rate for his class was less than 10%. Tells you something about the, the generation of people these days. They are less tough. And I have seen this. I have certainly seen this. Uh, so it, it, is, it, is a, it is a real uh, phenomenon. Uh, so the, the, so he gets this used car, he loads it up with the PEDs, he's taking the PEDs. Uh, it says that for the pneumonia, he resorted to a, a way of um, a way of dealing with this in which he was taking Viagra as a sort of, uh, I don't know, wives' tale that it, that it helps pneumonia. I don't know about that. That's going to affect his blood pressure. I mean, there's some clinical evidence, uh, very limited, that it might help or something. But I don't understand why he didn't get a hold of some antibiotics. You know, I mean, a heavy-duty run of antibiotics. You could use telemedicine. You go on your phone. You, they're delivered to your door in about five minutes. A lot of people order them for STDs. A lot of people order antibiotics constantly the same way for STDs. Uh, but you could order that for pneumonia. And uh, they're delivered right to your door for 10 or 15 bucks. I don't know, but it talks about this in this article. He didn't do that. And, and it's just sad because what a, what a capable young man in terms of the, you know, the IQ and the athletic ability and, and all of that. They talk about another story here that they bring up out of nowhere, um, kind of in the article. I don't know exactly what it has to do with this, but um, they're talking about the use of drugs. Now, first of all, they say, you know, you can't keep up with the other guys on drugs if you're not on drugs. But the thing about this is that you don't need to keep up with the other guys. You have to meet times. You have to meet standards. This is what was you know, conveyed to me in my research of this. And so the, the times get harder and harder for the runs and the swims and the obstacle courses and all of this. Um, the times get harder and harder. And you have to meet the standards. And whether the other guy meets them by a little bit more, it doesn't matter. It's not a ranking. It's not as though they say, you know, you only graduate the top 15 people. It doesn't work that way. So this talks about somebody named Brandon Caserta. I went through Buds. Um, he said it was hard. The drug use was rampant. Uh, he uh, did not make it through. Uh, he got an undesirable low-level job after breaking his leg. Uh, ended up manning a snack counter at a distant base. He was really disheartened. His father said he felt like he'd been cheated out of something that he had worked hard for. In 2008, Seaman Caserta left a note for his parents criticizing the Navy for its treatment of him and saying he did not want a military funeral and then hurled himself into the tail rotor of a Navy helicopter, uh, dying in the process. Now, uh, for those of you who are listening audio, you, you can't see uh, Seaman Caserta here. Sad story. You can't see him here. But you look at uh, this, and... Um, I'm just going to say, I'm sure this is a, he's a very nice kid. By all accounts, he was, Seaman Caserta, a very nice kid. Um, but you can look at the photos of him, okay? And the photos, and if, you, if you're listening, you're going to have to look this up, I guess, but the, the, they don't scream Navy SEAL, okay? They just don't. The, the physiognomy of this guy is not one of high testosterone door kicker operator. Okay. Have you, have you seen the guys on seal team six and I mean, in combat, what these guys look like, 
I mean, these are some of the most brutal-looking human beings. I mean, they look like Vikings. And Seaman Caserti here does not. And in some cases, they don't always look like that. You know, they're teenagers. They go through, they look way different than they do when they're 28 and they're seasoned and they've, you know, they've got a beard that's filled out and all of that. But it's not that they always start off that way. But I'm just saying it's not a surprise that, that this person's body was not strong enough to hold up to that kind of abuse. And he got his shot, and it didn't work out. And, and sadly, he uh, ended it all, threw himself into a, a helicopter tail rotor. So it, it's, it's hard to know uh, exactly what the answer is here. I think that there's no doubt, and these are sad stories, of course. I mean, my God, the potential that these uh, people would have had either in the, the SEALs or in, or in some other uh, line of work is uh, tremendous, I'm sure. They would have had great potential. But in a society where uh, we already are dealing with uh, men who are on average a lot tougher than they used to be, the prospect of making the training less tough as opposed to more tough is one that would be harmful, obviously, for our national security. It would be harmful for our national security. Now, how tough is too tough? Well, how tough is too tough? You can run anybody into the ground. You could make a training so tough that no one could pass it. Okay, you could. You could say, um, we are not graduating you at the end of this class unless you have a 48-inch vertical jump. And guess what? You would have classes where one person or no people graduated. Congratulations. You've just screened for something that results in spending a great deal of money and producing zero of the end product. So you could do that. So if zero people are graduating, then you have something where it's become too tough. But people are joining up for this training they're going through it. They are graduating from it. They are in the process proving that they want to be there. They are being hardened tremendously in the process. They're gaining confidence and they're gaining the actual competence, the training that is conveyed to them on the technical aspects of this. So uh, that is uh, something to consider. Somebody in the chat here on YouTube says, have you seen Chinese or Russian training be similar in the propensity uh, required. I, I don't know about Chinese and, and, and Russian training. It's just too hard to say. They only really, they don't make it public the way that we do here in the U.S. They're closed societies fundamentally. So uh, one video that you can watch, um, and I think I, I could show you here, but we'd have issues as far as copyright, at least on YouTube. But one thing you could watch is um, if you look up after this episode, Russian Alpha Group uh, training on YouTube, Larry Vickers goes out to a Russian alpha group training, and uh, these are the most seasoned operative, operatives within the Spensnes. And uh, these guys, so I guess they're equivalent of SEAL Team 6 or uh, Delta Force, i.e. Naval Special Warfare Development Group and Army Combat Applications Group, as they're now known. And they're actually shooting each other. Okay, they're wearing bulletproof vests, and they're shooting each other with live rounds. In very controlled, in a controlled way, but man, the stakes are high. Yeah. That training would never, ever be allowed at any level of the U.S. military or in any other Western country. Ever. It would never be allowed. And possibly for good reason. But I don't know about the, the Chinese and Russian training, but the bottom line is it's, it's something where, you know, they're saying the training is just way too tough. Uh, now it's 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 questionable. I don't I don't know if that can be said. 
Uh, I know that people make it through, and they are, they prove to be some of the most effective uh, uh, combat uh, fighters, uh, the, the, some of the most effective warriors on earth. Uh, there's another report out having to do with these Trump documents. I, I'm only going to cover it very briefly here. That uh, Rolling Stone and a reporter who is infamous for fake news named Aswan Sabasang, I don't even know how that's a real name, uh, came out and basically said that uh, Trump was bragging about knowing things about Macron's uh, wife uh, or Macron's sex life being very scandalous. I don't know whether this is true, whether this intelligence has anything to do with that that was recovered out of Mar-a-Lago. It very well could. Many people don't know how much of an adversary uh, in certain situations France is to us on the world stage. France has some very big companies, um, and their foreign intelligence service is the preeminent foreign intelligence service when it comes to corporate, uh, corporate espionage here in the U.S. So the DGSE, uh, the Directorate of Foreign Intelligence, essentially what it translates to in uh, English from French, the DGSE uh, goes about uh, spying within U.S. companies stealing U.S. company secrets, and then conveying them to French competitors to those U.S. companies. They do this constantly. So that's why Trump would have been briefed on Macron's sex life, is because uh, the U.S. has to constantly deal with this. So, for example, Michelin spies on Goodyear for tire technology. Uh, Renault spies on Ford and GM and Tesla uh, to steal their technology. Uh, perhaps most famously, uh, the French intelligence, GDSE, spies on Boeing, the U.S. Uh, plane manufacturer, aerospace, to convey that information to Airbus and to other French defense manufacturers so that they can use those secrets in their products. And in fact, they, don't, they not only do that, but they actively sabotage the U.S. companies. So anytime a Boeing plane crashes, French intelligence springs into action. And they basically, a lot of times when you have these leaks out of Boeing that go to the media, Anytime a plane crash happens to try to make people less confident in Boeing, to try to win contracts away from Boeing towards Airbus, French intelligence is oftentimes the people who are getting those secrets or those scandals from within Boeing and then giving them to the media and, and, and promoting them. So that is uh, a, a very common occurrence. Uh, the French spy on us relentlessly in a corporate capacity. You can read more about it. There are books out there about this. Uh, a book out there by an author, last name Olson, who was former head of CIA counterintelligence. You can read about uh, some of these, these French operations and, over the years and how they have attempted to sabotage our companies. But you do look at Macron, I will say, Emmanuel Macron. His wife is 25 years older than him. That is a little bit interesting that she'd be 25 years older than him. He's 44, she's 69. That's a little bit strange. What does he do in his free time? Why is he married to a woman 25 years older? It is all very bizarre, and it is well within the realm of U.S. intelligence to uh, try and collect information about that and, and, and convey it to the president. That's very common. Now, I'm going to take more of your questions here on the next episode. You can send your questions in about fitness, uh, relationships, uh, slash dating, politics. Just go to jacobwold.org slash contact. Sign up for the newsletter while you're there. I only send out a newsletter maybe oh, once a month, maybe twice a month. So I, do, I won't spam you. I don't sell your email uh, to anyone. And so uh, sign up there, send in your questions on the contact page, jacobwool.org slash contact. Uh, and I will be back. Of course, this is a twice a week show. 
It's going to be streaming here and hopefully in other places as well, here meaning YouTube and, and probably on other platforms as well very soon. And of course, it's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Go subscribe to the podcast. This one, if you're watching live, will be out probably on podcast apps within an hour or two uh, for you to uh, download. It's the Podcasting 2.0 system, the Podcasting 2.0 index. So go sign up there. It's been wonderful to have you on the first episode of The Jacob Wolf Show. I'll see you on Monday, same time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Eastern, every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, More analysis and news coverage just like this coming next Monday. I look forward to seeing you then. Have a great weekend in the meantime, and thanks for watching.